Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 34. Last week, I began the theories around the dating of the Exodus, covering, at least at a high level, three potential dates of the Israelites' departure from Egypt, specifically around 1540, 1450, and 1276 BC. This week, I'm going to dive a little deeper into those theories, as well as a few others. So let's get started. Many researchers, well, those from the early 20th century, attempted to use artifacts uncovered at Jericho to date the Exodus. In Joshua chapter 6, we see that Jericho was the first city defeated by the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan. The actual account begins with the inference that the walled city was sieged by the Israelites. Then the chapter reads, Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you, along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days, with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walled city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. The people did as God commanded, and the walls came tumbling down. At that time, Jericho was an important commercial center at an oasis in the Jordan Valley east of Jerusalem. In 1920, archaeological excavations at Jericho by John Garstank, a British archaeologist from the University of Liverpool, proposed that a fortified city on the site was destroyed about 1400 BC, working under the assumption that this destruction was by the invading Israelites, then adding 40 years of wandering in the wilderness we could easily conclude that the Exodus would have occurred around 1440 BC. But his findings are pretty much wholly dismissed today. Why? Well, later excavations by Kathleen Kenyon, also from Great Britain, and a professor at Oxford, wrote that the mound of earth that contains the various levels of city ruins has suffered severe erosion and therefore had disturbed the levels of deposits on the mound and this had the effect of skewing the early attempts to date parts of the excavations. The evidence used previously to establish a 1400 BC date was later dated to the early Bronze Age, so sometime around 2200 BC. She proposed that there was little evidence left that could be dated to the 15th century BC, so nothing that could be attributed to a 1400 BC destruction. And this is just about as good of a time as any to discuss such archaeological artifacts. In Jericho, and really at most dig sites, archaeological evidence primarily consists of artifacts uncovered via excavations. And those cities that are mentioned in the biblical accounts as having been captured and destroyed by the invading Israelites, so far, no direct artifacts evidence the Exodus itself so researchers have to use indirect methods to deduce the later presence of Israel in Canaan. But archaeological excavations are usually complicated, 
with many of the findings depending on the interpretive skill of the excavator, along with the vigilance of the excavators themselves. And there are, of course, other complicating factors. First, most of these ancient cities were built and rebuilt many times, on the same site, and in many cases are still in use today, so literally built, torn down, and rebuilt many, many times over the past few millennia. But this isn't the same teardown and rebuild you see on many cable channels. In these ancient cities, the ruins of one city would simply be leveled and filled, and the next city would be built on top of the old one. Like I mentioned way back in the second chapter of the podcast, many times the rubble from the old city was used in the foundation of the new city, to the point that even clay tablets were used as foundations for rebuilds. And in doing so, this practice produced layers of occupation, layers that were frequently intermingled. Archaeologists then used the occupation levels to guide them in dating a site, as well as in establishing the relationship of different levels of occupation. But as can be easily seen, sometimes the layers, also known as strata, get mixed together. But that's not all the researchers use. As I've covered in the past, they also rely on pottery to establish the dates of settlements along with the contact these settlements had with outside groups. Different types and styles of pottery, the clay material used, types and ingredients, and the glazing and decorations, the style and shape, and even the level of workmanship can be a very dependable guide to dating. Since pottery was probably the most common household item in the ancient world, it occurs in all ancient city sites. The enormous amounts of pottery available, much of which can be traced to precise localities and time periods, has allowed historians to date certain strata levels relatively precisely within a range of time. Both of these, the general artifacts along with the pottery, provide what is known as hard historical evidence. But you cannot presume that such evidence is perfect, as it's still subject to interpretation by fallible humans. Remember a minute ago when I told of how erosion had disturbed the artifacts of Jericho? Just like that. But the opposite could also be true. The blending together of different levels of strata could also cause evidence related to the destruction found in Joshua to be misidentified as being from a different period. But Jericho wasn't the only place where archaeologists attempted to support the biblical narrative with archaeological evidence. There's also the city of Hazor. Hazor was a strategic and also fortified Canaanite city located in what is today far northern Israel. It's about 10 miles or 16 kilometers due north of the Sea of Galilee. Of all the places overrun by the advancing Israelites following the 40 years of wandering, it was the only fortified city that the Israelites captured in battle and then destroyed at least in the early military expeditions. Now keep in mind that they did overtake Jericho, but there was no fight. They just, with the help of God of course, brought the walls down. The story of Hazor can be found in Joshua chapter 11. The actual passage reads, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king down with the sword. Before that time, Hazor was the head for all those kingdoms, and they put to the sword all who were in it, utterly destroying them. 
There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the towns of those kings, and all their kings, Joshua took and struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. But Israel burned down none of the towns that stood on mounts except Hazor, which Joshua did burn. All the spoils of these towns and the livestock the Israelites took for their booty. But all the people they struck down with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. End quote. John Gerste, the same Brit who excavated Jericho, also studied Hazor, and also in the 1920s. Here, he claimed to have found signs of destruction by fire that could be dated to about 1400 BC. Just like Jericho, you can add 40 years of wilderness wandering to the date and arrive at an exodus date stamped around 1440 BC. A little bit different from the artifacts found at Jericho, though, there were a few items at Hazor that could have been related to a 15th century BC destruction. Now to be clear, this evidence does not show that this destruction was part of an invasion, or could be associated with the Israelites. But it also does not show it wasn't, or better stated, it shows that the city was destroyed, but provides no indication who did the destroying. Israeli archaeologist Yigael Yadin conducted further excavations, which he thought showed that the city was destroyed in the 13th century BC. And this destruction was more intensive than the prior destruction, the one uncovered by Garstang. Afterwards, the city was only sparsely occupied for about the next 200 years. Then, in the 11th century BC, it was fortified again. So overall, at least according to Yadin, the archaeological evidence uncovered by the excavation could be fitted into a broad reading of the biblical narrative, with the city destroyed by the invading Israelites, rebuilt and fortified by Solomon, destroyed again by the Assyrians, and then rebuilt under Assyrian control. However, the evidence of a 15th century date destruction, and therefore related to the Exodus, is perhaps the weakest found that still supports the longer, broader narrative. If the Exodus occurred in the 13th century BC, then the support, at least at Hazor, would be stronger. Similar findings were also uncovered at Lachish and Debir, both mentioned in Joshua chapter 10, along with Bethel from Judges chapter 1, though these artifacts are thought to support a 13th century BC exodus. Now, there is a counter-argument, usually presented by the exodus did not occur crowd. So that you can better understand their perspective, I'll walk you through their argument, at least from a relatively high level. The proponents argue that both the sites of Jericho and Hazor merely show the intent of the biblical history crowd, that they claim are too eager to correlate archaeological evidence with biblical stories. Their eagerness clouds their objectivity. The no-exodus crowd further claims that much of the archaeological excavation early in the 20th century was intended to support the biblical accounts instead of being an effort to gain reliable historical evidence. Therefore, Assumptions were thought to be based on the uncovered artifacts, but instead the artifacts could have potentially indicated something completely different. 
Who knows? But what is clear, clearly, is that the archaeological evidence does not firmly support a certain date, so we'll need to look elsewhere. And one place we can look to is the alignment between the biblical story and what we are relatively certain of about Egyptian history. And to be clear, the purpose of this look is not to prove or disprove that the Exodus did occur, but it is instead to work under the assumption that it did occur. And with that out of the way, attempt at least to align the biblical story with known Egyptian and Canaanite history. First, let's take what is known through the Exodus, in this case meaning the book. Exodus tells us that after Moses became an adult, and after killing someone, Moses fled to the desert to avoid the wrath of the Pharaoh. He settled with the Midianites. At about the same time that this Pharaoh died, God told him to return to Egypt. In Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen claims that Moses spent 40 years in Midian. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, we are told that Moses was 120 years old when he died. And a little algebra reveals that, when we allow for 40 years of wilderness wandering, Moses would have been about 80 years old at the time of the Exodus. This answer is confirmed in Exodus chapter 7. All of this means that the Pharaoh who ruled when Moses fled to Midian must have reigned for at least 40 years to allow Moses to remain in Midian that length of time before the ruler died. So, let's attempt to align this with the non-Egyptian timeline of their rulers. And when we walk through all of the rulers and reign links, at least those from the second intermediate period forward, we see that the only possibilities for this length of reign in this period are Thutmose III, who ruled between about 1504 and 1450 BC, and Ramses II, who ruled between 1290 and 1224 BC. And if you assume that 1 Kings chapter 6 is pedantically spot on, then Ramses ruled too late, leaving you with Thutmose III in the early New Kingdom. Of course, when you build arguments on assumptions layered one on another, the odds of something going awry increases with each layer of assumption. In about the 40 years, as we're beginning to see this number with a certain amount of frequency, 1 Kings 12 generations at 40 years each, 40 years of wandering, 40 years in Midian, and many other places throughout the Bible. There is a segment of scholars who believe that the number in many, maybe all cases, is a placeholder that should not be numerically relied upon, and instead is meant to designate an unspecified amount. So, to them, the time in the wilderness may be unknown. Moses' years in Midian, and perhaps even the days on the ark. Just something to keep in mind. The next angle we can use to determine the date of the Exodus is what is known as the Merneptah Stele. I mentioned Merneptah last week, and for a quick refresher, he was the son of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. Merneptah succeeded his father as the ruler of Egypt in the late 13th century BC. One of his monuments is a stele that commemorated his victorious campaigns against Canaan in Syria, campaigns that occurred between 1212 and 1209 BC. This stele is the earliest historical mention of the nation of Israel, which Merneptah claims to have completely annihilated. 
And from this, we can infer a few things. First, for the Israelites to be recognized as a nation by an Egyptian pharaoh, some time would have had to pass since the Exodus. Time that would have permitted Israel's escape from Egypt, survival in the wilderness, whether 40 years or some other period, the initial battles that gained them their territory, and the coalescing as a nation, a nation both large and powerful enough that the Egyptian pharaoh would brag about their defeat. And we can also deduce that the Egyptians had a different definition for annihilation, as the Israelites continued to exist. All of this lends support to the 15th century date for the Exodus. Now, there is a huge variable in how long exactly it would take for the Israelites to be recognized as an independent people. So, even the later date of the 13th century, that of 1276 BC, followed by 40 years of wandering, will get you to 1236. So a campaign by Ramsey's son 24 years later could allow enough time for them to be established. So, theoretically, the Steely would support either the 15th century or 13th century date. But do note that the Steely does not mention any sort of revenge being a motivator for the Pharaoh smiting the Israelites. Had they escaped from his father and brought suffering to the Egyptian people, the Merneptah would have ordered his carvers to make such a note on the monument of his victory over the same people. And there are other artifacts that can be inferred to document the 15th century exodus. The Armana letters are such an example. These letters were found with other artifacts at what was the ancient city of Akhenaten, which is modernly known as Armana. Around 1400 BC, it was made the capital of Egypt, and would remain so for about 50 years. Pharaoh Akhenaten was in charge then, hence the name of the city. He was the pharaoh who switched from polytheism to monotheism, essentially only worshipping their sun deity Aten. The monotheism didn't last, and neither did the city, with some researchers saying it was occupied for as little as 20 years. But it was there long enough for a cache of written documents, well, not really written, but inscribed on tablets, to be set aside and uncovered in the 19th century AD. 382 such letters. And some of these clay tablets were from Canaanite leaders appealing to the pharaoh for help in defending their cities from an invader known as the Aparu. Some historians propose that the name Aparu is one and the same as the name Hebrew. And if this is true, then the date of the letters would support a 15th century BC exodus. Of course, the biggest problem with this theory is that the name Aparu may not be the Hebrews, but some other peoples. Now, some researchers propose that the name is really Sumerian and could be older than the name Hebrew. The name was somewhat frequently used throughout the Middle East to refer to groups who lived on the margins of civilized society, exiles who were often hired as mercenaries. The opposing camp counters that while the term is not linguistically related to the word Hebrew, it is possible that it could have been applied to the Israelites. But, since the term was typically illustrative of an assortment of people lacking specific reference to any national or ethnic origins, 
there is absolutely no evidence that the references in the Armana letters can be identified specifically with the Israelites. But there is also no evidence that it does not refer to them either. The geographic areas of both Edom and Moab tend to show support for a later exodus, potentially in the 13th century BC. Archaeological excavations on the east bank of the Jordan River show that there was no settled civilizations in these areas until around the late 14th or early 13th century BC. It was also around the time that we first see them mentioned in Egyptian artifacts, with the Edomites being mentioned in an Egyptian letter, specifically in the 13th century BC. Numbers chapter 20 mentions that Moses contacted the Edomite king during the 40 years of wandering. Numbers chapter 20 mentions that Moses had contact with the Edomite king during the 40 years of wandering. So the Edomites would have to have existed soon after the Exodus. Now, it's important to note that while there aren't many artifacts in the area that support a 15th century kingdom, it's well understood that the area was occupied by nomadic people, so a nomadic king of Edom would not be unlikely. Also, it's a desert, and we've seen many cases where civilizations are lost to the shifting sands. Think the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. Several weeks ago, I covered the Hyksos Kingdom of Northern Egypt, and if you align what is known about this kingdom with the timeline found in the Book of Exodus, you landed at 13th century BC Exodus. Backing up a couple of centuries, the Hyksos were in power between about 1667 and 1546 BC. This time period approximately corresponds to the era of the patriarchs, so it could make sense that this is when the Israelites, led by Joseph and Jacob, migrated to Egypt. Then in Exodus chapter 12, we're presented with a timeline that references the span of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt. It reads, The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. End quote. If we take the earliest suggested date for the Hyksos control of Egypt, and that's 1720 BC, and assume this is the time when Joseph brought his family to Egypt, then add 430 years, you land at 1290 BC. You can do the math backwards from the 1446 proposed Exodus date and land at 1876 BC, but this is well before we see any signs of the Hyksos in Egypt. Now, there's one additional note to add to the 430 years in Egypt found in Exodus 12. And that's that the Septuagint, a 2nd century BC translation of the Old Testament, added the phrase, and in the land of Canaan, to Exodus, meaning that the 430 years covers not only the period of time the Israelites spent in Egypt, but also includes the time that the patriarchs lived in Canaan before they went to Egypt, which makes the timeline much more fluid. If we then sum up the different times given for the patriarchs from several points in Genesis, we end up with about 215 years that they lived in Canaan. And then the Exodus moves back towards the 15th century BC. Another place where we can attempt to align the archaeology with the narrative is with the city of Ramses, 
found in the first chapter of Exodus. As I mentioned last week, we know of a city named Ramses, constructed by the second pharaoh with that name. What I failed to mention was that the name Ramses was not uncommon prior to the 13th century BC and could have been associated with someone or something else. The name translates to Ra is born and refers to the sun god Ra. Instead of a city, it could have also been a temple or something similar. So, if the name in Exodus is for a city, then we have to lean towards a 13th century BC Exodus and the passage in 1 Kings becomes problematic. But if it is for a structure, like a temple, the 15th century BC Exodus date is viable. Finally, I need to cover what is known about Egyptian history in the area of Canaan. As I've covered before, during the 15th century BC, Egypt frequently sent military expeditions to this region, going as far east as the Euphrates, north to what is today Turkey, and frequently engaged with the Mitanni, all of this in the area that Israel would later occupy. But in the next century, so the 14th BC, the power of the Egyptians had waned, allowing the Hittites to regain a foothold in Canaan. And this part I haven't gotten to yet in the history of Egypt, but I need to cover it now, at least relatively quickly. Between the late 14th to mid-13th centuries BC, there were several wars between Egypt and the Hittites, but the vast majority of these conflicts fought in the Levant. The conflict would not be settled until Ramses II inked a treaty with his Canaanite foes in 1258 BC, but this struggle is not mentioned in the biblical narrative. Obviously, if the territory that the two empires fought over was the exact same as that occupied by the Israelites, then the exodus would have had to occur later. However, the Egyptians were fighting the Mitanni, and as we've seen, they regularly employed a tactic of bypassing cities that they did not want to engage with. So, the Israelites could have been there, and the Egyptians didn't see this young nation as a threat to their sovereignty. So they left the Hebrews alone. Also, in the book of Judges, we see a recorded period of rest. In chapter 3 of that book, it's listed as a period of rest lasting 40 years. A bit speculative, but this could have been when the Egyptians controlled the area. Finally, back to the maxim from last week. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So we're left not really knowing. Some evidence points the exodus towards the 15th century, and other evidence towards the 13th century BC and a little bit of evidence even towards an even earlier date. And we may never know. There are many, many other theories, but most are slight tweaks to what I've covered. You should be able to deduce by now that it's exceedingly difficult to align the outside history with the narrative. And this isn't to say that either is wrong. But remember, we are attempting to use what is known to be incomplete data to support a 3,000-year-old narrative. It's nearly an impossible task. And with that, I'll wrap up this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll restart the history of the New Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from 
and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And for those of you that haven't, get to it. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.